Well, good morning. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning. I want to welcome you here to uh, balmy, warm, tropical Buford, Georgia today. And I'm glad that you have come to join us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. It is exciting to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and, and being a part of our worship services this morning. It really is good. Uh, when it's cold outside, it's good to be in a place where you can gather with God's people around the, the, the Word of God and be able to share the warmth of a family and uh, God's family joining together in worship. And so we're excited to do that. If you brought your Bibles with you today, and I certainly hope that you have, would you please take them and turn with me to John's Gospel, the 21st chapter. John chapter 21. And we are going to be looking at what I consider to be one of my most favorite passages in all of the New Testament this morning, uh, particularly from the Gospels. I'm excited about studying this passage in John 21. While you're making your way there, I thought I would share just a, a few little interesting facts that I read this week concerning New Year's resolutions. I have no doubt that there's probably some of you here uh, this morning who made some New Year's resolutions. And you might be interested in knowing this, that based upon uh, some of the, the, the researchers who have looked at some of the most... Uh, searched for terms and words on Google in the last three months of the last year, they were able to kind of determine what they figured would be the number one New Year's resolution for 2017. And it probably is not going to surprise or come as a shock to any of you that the number one resolution for 2017 involved getting healthy. That is the, the number one resolution. And that, that kind of encompasses a lot of different things. It encompasses loss of weight. It encompasses more exercise. It encompasses stopping bad habits that, that are detrimental to our health. All of those things kind of come underneath that heading of getting healthy in 2017. Uh, you might also know, though, that the other research has been done that helps us understand just how long we are able to keep our New Year's resolutions, and you will find out we don't keep them very long uh, in most cases. As a matter of fact, in 2016, a grocery store retailer actually tracked the sale of some of the things that they sold in there, and they produced this information that people were able to uh, come to some conclusions about. You might find this interesting. Shoppers bought 15% more ice cream and desserts and 35% more pizza in early February than they did in January. <laughs> Another study drilled down even deeper and were able to conclude that February 4th is the day that people are most likely to fall off the wagon. Now, here's the reason why. In 2016, that date marked an uptick in visits to fast food restaurants and a downturn in trips to the gym. February 4th, my calculations, that is what, uh, 34, 35 days from the first of the year? That's how long it takes? And listen, that, that trend is not just relegated to health-related resolutions. In fact, a research study by the University of Scranton suggests that just 8% of people actually achieve their New Year's goals. Now, if we flip that, we could state it this way. 92% of us actually fail to realize our New Year's goals. Perhaps you know what that's like. I know that I know what that is like. I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to not even make it to February 4th. <laughs> but you know what? I know what it's like to fail, not at just keeping resolutions related to pizza and ice cream, 
I know what it's like to fail at even more important goals, such as becoming a better father, becoming a better husband, becoming a better pastor of a church. I know what it's like to fail at resolutions and goals of becoming a better Christian and a better follower of Christ. Perhaps you can relate in some way. Perhaps you, like me and countless others, you know what it's like to, to sort of wear that moniker, failure. Because you know how often you've tried, how many goals you've set for yourself, how many times you said that you were going to study your Bible more, how many times you said that you were going to be more faithful in your church attendance, how many times that you said you were going to be more faithful in this area of discipleship in your life, you were going to do this, you were going to do that, and yet you realize how often you have failed at those exact same things. If you can understand that and relate in some way, then this morning you're going to be able to relate to the story in John 21. You see, if anyone could testify to the fact that they understood what it was like to fail, I think that would be the Apostle Peter. In fact, in last week's sermon from Psalm 1, I, I actually used Peter as a, as a prominent example that, that talks about the failure that can come into our lives at times. And I referred you to the fact that, that, that Peter, who had boasted of his great love for Jesus had on the night that Jesus was arrested just before he was crucified, denied on three separate occasions of even knowing the Lord. In Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus looked at Peter. And he looked at him in the high priest's courtyard right after Peter had denied the Lord on that third time. And when their eyes met, Peter's heart was just crushed. He was shameful. He was filled with regret because of what he had done. Jesus predicted it would happen, but Peter had been the one who had steadfastly said that he would be loyal, and he boasted of his loyalty to Jesus. But now those words haunted him as he ran out of the courtyard and as he wept bitterly. You see, Peter knew what it was like to fail. My guess is that all of us in some way can identify with him. Unfortunately, we know what it's like to fail. We know what it's like to fail others that are around us. We know what it's like to fail and disappoint ourselves. But even more importantly, we know what it's like to fail and disappoint Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves today, all of us know what it's like to experience failure. What I want you to know this morning is this. Though failure is a powerful word, forgiveness is even more powerful. We're going to see that in our text today. We're going to find that though Peter had failed miserably, he was nevertheless forgiven and restored, and he was given a purpose in life that surpassed anything that he had ever imagined before. And John 21 represents a pivotal moment in Peter's life after which he devoted himself to following Christ wholeheartedly. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that many of you will find our study of this passage in John 21 to be a pivotal moment in your life as well. So with that as an introduction, let's read this passage this morning. The first 19 verses of John chapter 21. Verse 1 begins this way. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin... Nathanael of Cana in, in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately they got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, 
Jesus stood on the shore, and yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and the fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and he dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, John says, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, written by men, but through the power of your Holy Spirit. And consequently, Lord, we know that we can have full faith and confidence in what is here, recognizing that it is a word from you, knowing that we can put our trust in what you are communicating to us. And, and so, Lord, because that's the case, we who gather here today gather wanting to know what you would have us to understand from this text. We are people who, are, who have failed. We are people who have made a mess out of things in our lives. And if we're honest, we are people who are needing to be forgiven and restored. And my prayer this morning is that as we engage with this holy word, this inerrant word that you have given us, that it will transform our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit working through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You'll notice that this passage begins by telling us that Jesus showed himself or revealed himself once more to his disciples after his resurrection. 
John tells us that seven disciples uh, were, had, had traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee to the this, this Sea of, of, of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And, and we know why they were there. They were there because Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, had told them to go to the mountain there in Galilee and to wait for him until he appeared to them once more. And so we're not exactly sure how long they had waited. We don't know exactly what, how long that transpired between Matthew 28 and, and John 21. But nevertheless, what we know is that these seven disciples were gathered together around the Sea of Galilee and they were waiting for Jesus to appear. And somewhere along the line, Peter looked at his other friends that were there with him and says, I'm going to go fishing. And they said, you know what, we think that's a good idea. We're going to go with you. And now many scholars have maligned Peter. They've, they've chastised him for doing that. They've, they've said to him that, that, that insinuating what, what Peter did was is that he abandoned his mission that Jesus had given him in order to return to the profession of fishing, which he had always been a part of and that Christ had called him away from. But I think that's unlikely and I think it's a little uncharitable and there's a couple of reasons why I think that's the case. First of all, we find Peter and those other disciples exactly where Jesus had told them to be. He said, meet me there at the mountain in Galilee, and that's where they were. They were there by the sea at the foot of the mountain there in Galilee. So they had not, they had not gone away from what Jesus had told them to do. They had gone to the exact spot that Jesus had told them to go to. And so there was obedience that was, was inherent in the fact that they were where Christ had told them to be. The second thing that I, I think about this is that, as one commentator noted, even though Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, the disciples still had to eat. And so... What we see in my mind is that it doesn't appear that Peter and the others were, were running away from Jesus back to their old way of life. Rather, as they waited on him to reappear, what it was is they were attempting to do was to use their skill as fishermen to, to, to pass the time and also to feed themselves. Only we realize that they weren't so successful, were they? John tells us that though they had fished all night long, they had caught nothing. Now, quite honestly, that sounds like every fishing trip I've ever been on in my entire life. But suddenly, the text tells us that Jesus appears to them as a stranger on the shoreline. And he calls out the disciples. Evidently, he was far enough away from them that they didn't recognize the form of his body. Maybe the, the way that the, the air was that day, they didn't, couldn't, couldn't recognize his voice when he called out to him. But nonetheless, here's this person on the shore, and he calls out to them who were in the boat, and he says, children or boys or lads, he says, have you caught anything? Now, don't you just know that question rubbed them the wrong way? I mean, after all, if you've been out fishing all night long trying to catch something and you haven't ever landed anything in your boat, the last thing in the world that you want to hear is somebody ask you, hey, how many you caught? The reason why that's the case is because it reminds you of just how great a failure you actually are at what you're doing. It's kind of like a golfer who's gone out and he's had double and triple bogeys all day long and somebody says, so how'd you shoot today? Well, not too good. Thank you for reminding me of the fact that I had a bad round. I kind of look at the same thing here. Don't you know that it sort of rubbed them the wrong way to think about the fact that here you've got this person on the shore who they don't know who it is saying, how many fish do you have? Surely the disciples had labored all night. They'd thrown their nets overboard. They'd reeled them back in. They'd cleaned out all the junk and all the trash, never finding a fish. They'd pulled those big heaving things over and throwed them back in again and again and again. They were tired. They were disappointed. They were hungry. 
Now some stranger is asking them, have we caught anything? No, we've not caught anything. Thanks for, thanks for noticing. But there is something here that I think is worth pondering. See, though I don't believe the disciples were being disobedient in their fishing endeavor, I do believe that this was a perfect opportunity for the Lord to remind them of their necessity to depend upon Him. You see, on their own, they had caught nothing. So Jesus, even though they don't realize it's Jesus, He tells them to throw their nets out on the other side of the boat, on the right side. And He says, then you'll catch fish. Now, what do you think the disciples are thinking right about this point? Who does this guy think he is? What do you mean throw it out on the other side? We're out here in the middle of the lake. What difference does it make if we throw it out on the right side or the left side? We're the, we're the professionals here. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Well, this is what we know. Though they didn't realize it, we recognize that the stranger on the seashore was none other than the resurrected Christ. And friend, it makes all the difference in the world what side of the boat you cast your net over when the crucified and resurrected Savior of the world gives you instructions. Peter and the others are just about to find that out. I don't know what they said to themselves, but they do as they're told. And then according to verse 6, John tells us that they were not able to draw the net in because of the multitude of fish. You see, it does make all the difference in the world what side of the boat you throw it out on when Jesus tells you what to do. And when you live in obedience to what Christ said, He does miraculous things. Failure will always come, friend, when you strike out on your own, try to accomplish things. I don't know what, I don't know what areas of your life maybe that your resolutions surround I don't know what things in your life that you wish were different and that you were hoping that your goals for this coming year would, would, would take you in a different direction. Here's what I do know. Willpower alone will not be sufficient. You can struggle and you can work and you can claw and you can scrape, but the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 are still just as valid today as they were the days that he uttered them. When he says, you are the vine, you are the branches and I am the vine. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Friend, we have to recognize that when we get ourselves outside of Christ and moved away from Him, we can't do anything on our own. It is only as we are connected to Him that we have the ability to do anything. Maybe it was the huge haul of fish, maybe it was His voice, but suddenly John recognized the stranger on the shore to be Jesus, and he tells Peter, I believe that's the Lord. And Peter does something that to me is one of the one of the funniest little sections that you'll get in all of Scripture. He decides it's him, and he reaches down, and he picks up his outer coat, and he dives right into the water and attempts to try to swim to land. And Dave and I were talking about this week. The first thing that I think about now when I read that, I just think about, I think about Forrest Gump when he saw Lieutenant Dan. And he just dives right into the water. Doesn't even, he doesn't even bother to try to take, get, do the boat. That's the way Peter was. In matter of fact, one... one one has, commentator has known this. John, the beloved disciple, exhibits quick insight. Peter exhibits quick action. It's really strange to me, though, that, that he would do that and try to swim back to shore and get as fast as he could. But I want you to notice something in this. Notice what Peter didn't do. Peter didn't just stay in the boat. And I think that would have been really easy for Peter to have done. Consider, consider what had just happened. I mean, Peter was the one who had denied the Lord on three separate occasions. Peter was the one who had failed 
He was the one who had, who had failed in a, in a really huge way. And yet when he sees and knows that it's Jesus on the shore, he doesn't even bother to try to do anything, but he wants to get to it. He wants to get near Jesus. I find that to be so opposite of sometimes of the way that I respond and perhaps the way that you respond. You see, a lot of times when we fail, when we, when we mess things up, when we, when we find ourselves on the opposite side of where we really wanted to be, especially with regard to our goals and with regard to our maturity and our discipleship and following Christ, the last thing in the world that we want is to be near Christ. The first thing that we want to do is say, well, he doesn't want to see me. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be near me. I can't go to him right now until I get things cleaned up. That was not Peter's response. Peter's response is, I've got to get to Jesus. Friends, that's something that you and I ought to recognize. When we've messed up, it is then that we, we need to run to Jesus. Now, Peter didn't run. He swam. But I want you to know the rest of his disciples were left on that boat trying to get that huge haul of fish in and trying to get back to the shore. And when they reached the shore, there's something that they found. They found a fire of coals. And that's an important little part of that story because the only other occasion... In John's Gospel, where you find a fire of coals mentioned, it was back in chapter 18, verse 8. And in John 18, verse 8, you find there that Peter was warming himself by a fire of coals when he steadfastly denied that he knew who Jesus was. See, the crackling warmth of this second fire was going to serve as a backdrop for Peter's restoration. Jesus tells his disciples to bring some of the fish that they'd caught and Peter, he's big and strong. He's a man of action. He goes and he just grabs the, the net and begins to bring it on shore. And it was a big catch to the point where they found 153 fish inside their net. And you would be shocked if you went back and read all the commentaries and how many times they've tried to take that number, 153, and extrapolate from that all kinds of theological meanings as to what 153 fish mean. Let me tell you what my thought is. You know what 153 fish means? It means a big catch. There were a lot of fish in that net. So much so that they actually went and counted them all so that they could record. Man, this was the biggest fish. This was the biggest catch we'd ever had. Jesus speaks again. He says, guys, come eat breakfast. I love fish. My, my kids love fish. My wife loves fish. All of us love fish. When breakfast time comes, fish is not what's on my thought pattern. <laughs> I'm more of a pig man at breakfast. But I want you to understand this. Think about this. Can you imagine a better breakfast menu in the world than fire-roasted fish and bread served to you by the master of the universe and the savior of the world? Could it be any better than that? I love what R.C. Sproul has written in his commentary on this passage. He says, this is the same Jesus who had washed their feet in the upper room, who had taken their places on the cross, and who had assumed their sin in his person on Golgotha. Here, Jesus still served them, providing their daily bread there on the seashore, and he also provides for you and me in the present day as well. Now, what I want you to note is that everything that's happened thus far in this story really it sets the stage for what's about to take place. The other disciples have been a part of the story, but now the, the spotlight's really fixing to narrow down. And it's going to shine just on Jesus and Peter. 
And here's where you and I really need to sit up and take notice because if you, like me, are somebody who's well acquainted with what it means like to be a failure and you know what it's like to fail Christ and to fail others and to fail yourself, right here is where we need to sit up and pay attention because we're going to see what Jesus does. Because you see, Peter's had the not-so-subtle reminder that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. He's been out there as a professional fisherman not catching a thing. And it wasn't until he obeyed and did what Jesus said that suddenly he was able to, to find some fish. So he's had that subtle reminder. He's not only had that, but now he's also had this subtle reminder as he gets there that his hungry belly has been filled by the fish that Jesus Christ has prepared for him so that he realizes that Jesus is his provider. He's not only the one who empowers him, he's the one who provides for him. And now there's this crackling fire that reminds him also of the point of his greatest failure. And so Peter's ready. He's ready for what Jesus is about to say. And this is what Jesus does. He asks him the question, Simon... Son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? It's a strange question. What does he mean, more than these? Is he talking about more than these other disciples? Well, that's a possibility from, from the language part of it, but it doesn't really make sense interpretively. It doesn't make sense in a lot of the context because he's not saying, do you, love me? do you love me more than you love these other disciples? That's really not what Jesus is asking. It wouldn't make sense according to the context. When he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? He could be talking about the boats and the nets and the fish. I mean, Peter was a fisherman. But there again, I still think apart from the context, that doesn't, it doesn't really fit. Let me give you what my interpretation of what Jesus means here is. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than the rest of these disciples love me? Now, let me explain why I think that that's the context and what Jesus is asking. You see, Peter's self-confidence came into full view when he and the other disciples were with Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus told them that, that he would be going away and that they would not be able to follow him. And Peter realized that Jesus was talking about his death. And so he blurted out, he said, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. You'll recall later in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus was arrested, Jesus spoke of the fact that his disciples would scatter after he was crucified. And according to Matthew's gospel, Peter blurted out again, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. See, Peter had professed his devotion to Jesus. He had he even insinuated his willingness to follow Christ was greater than all the rest of those who surrounded Jesus. His absolute commitment to follow him was there to the bitter end is exactly what he professed. And yet we know that he didn't do that. We know that when the going got rough, Peter denied even knowing the Lord. Simon, do you love me? Do you really love me? Many have even made a lot of theological arguments based upon the word love, the differences that are there. When Jesus asked the question, Simon, do you love me? He uses the word agape in Greek, which is a, uh, it, it's the, it represents the highest love that's imaginable. It's a spiritual love that is grounded in the power of God. But when Peter responds, he responds that he loves the Lord. He uses a different word. He uses the word phileo, which generally refers to brotherly love. That's why we call the city of Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. I hold the position that too much is made of the differences between those two words, however, because in John's gospel, those words are kind of used interchangeably an awful lot. And I don't, I'm not really sure that, that, that there's a theological inference to be brought from that. 
Here's what I do understand. Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter responds, Lord, you know the answer to that question. You know that I love you. Here's the real import. Jesus asked the question three times. Three times. Does that seem cruel a little bit? I mean, if, if you ask your wife or you ask your husband or you ask your parents or your child, do you love me? And they give you a, a, a positive response. And you turn around and you ask it again. And they give you a positive response. And then you ask it a third time. Doesn't that some way seem to strike as maybe you don't believe what, they, what they're saying? It even tells us here, John tells us that when after being asked the third time, do you love me, that Peter was grieved in his heart because he had asked him the third time. Here's what I believe is happening here. Peter publicly denied the Lord on three separate occasions. And yet here, Jesus is giving him an opportunity to publicly affirm his love for, the, for him on three separate occasions. You see... Because of the way that Jesus not only forgave Peter, but the way he publicly restored him, both Peter and the others, from this point forward, would know that Peter's past had been forgiven. He'd been restored from the failure that he had. Had that not been the case, it would have always hung out there in front of him. That he was somehow inferior, somehow unworthy. But that's exactly what God is through, the, through Jesus here is, is attempting to do, is to, to restore him to the place where he had been. And you see, not only did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him, what's of great importance is that Jesus tells Peter what his love requires. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. In other words, your love for me is going to be displayed in the fact that you're going to provide pastoral care for my flock. In fact, all three times, following Peter's affirmation of his love for Jesus, Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. He says, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter's commission was, was to serve Christ by taking care of Christ's sheep. They're his sheep. They're his, they're his by his creation, but they're also his by his redemption. And as one who had been forgiven and restored, Peter was given a tremendous responsibility of pastoring people. In other words, he was given a purpose that went beyond the routine of life. But it didn't, didn't stop there. Jesus goes on to say, when you were young, you, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you get older, someone's going to gird you and they're going to carry you where you do not wish. And John tells, him, John tells us that, that he spoke this because he was signifying the way that Peter would die. From a historical perspective, what we know is that it was about 30 years later after this conversation took place on that seashore that Peter actually met his death at the hands of Nero in Rome. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Truly his hands were stretched out and he was girded in a way that he would not have wished. But Jesus' prophetic words came true. Nevertheless, here in this passage, Jesus tells him to follow me. Even though that's what's going to happen to you, even though that's hanging out in front of you, one day that's going to happen. I want you to follow me. And from that point forward, Peter did, and he gave the rest of his life in sacrifice for the glory of God. Now, what I want you to know this morning, and you'll be excited to hear this, all of that was my introduction. But that allows me to state for you my sermon in a sentence this morning. 
This is what I've been wanting to get to, is to this part. For all of you who have failed out there, for all of you who are like me, who've messed up and made a mess out of your life, here's the sermon in a sentence. The failures of your past do not disqualify you from the hope of a bright future of glorifying God because Christ forgives and He restores and He gives purpose in living. So follow Him. That's what He calls us to do. Just follow me. Follow the steps that I put in front of you. Now you, maybe you can begin to understand why, why John 21 is such a beautiful passage. Why it, why it speaks to somebody like me so greatly. Because you see, when we failed and you failed miserably in your life, it's something to know that Christ can forgive you and He can move you from that place to a place where you can still be used and your, your life can still count for the glory of God. And that's what leads me to some points of application that I want you to see that come from that and then we'll close this morning. Notice the first one is this. You see, when, when Peter responded to Jesus' question, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. And that's exactly the truth. You see, the God who knows the worst about you loves you anyway. The God who knows the worst about you loves you anyway. Jesus knew that Peter would fail long before Peter ever did fail. But he went to the cross for Peter's sake anyways. In fact, that is what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 5.8. He says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? That means that you don't have to hide in shame from God because of what's happened to you in your past. He knows you. He knows everything about you and He loves you anyway. He loves you enough to die on the cross in your place that you might experience forgiveness. You may say, yes, preacher, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the depths to which I have fallen. You don't know the, the mess that I have made of my life. And you're exactly right. I don't, but God does. And the second point that I want you to know about that is this. No matter how far you have fallen, Jesus can and will restore you. Doesn't matter how far you've gone. Jesus can and will restore you. Peter had denied him, but Jesus still cooked breakfast for him on the seashore. He still invited him to have fellowship with him. And friend, Jesus invites you to the very same thing, to a restored fellowship with him. No matter what sin may have come into your life, the Savior who is willing to, to go to the cross and die for you is the same one who is wants and, and requests that you come and sit with him and abide with him and enjoy his fellowship. But you should also recognize this. Things will never be the same again. The third point that I want you to know is this. Even though you have failed, Jesus has a purpose and a mission for you that will go far beyond the routine of life. Peter had failed miserably, but in John 21, he was commissioned by Christ to pastor his sheep, to feed them from the very word of God. There may be some of you in this room this morning that Christ is calling you to that exact ministry. Some of you, he may be calling you to, to be the father and the mother who shepherds the heart of your children the way that he would desire for you to do. 
He may be calling you to be a greater witness for Him in the workplace or among your friends or among your family. What the Lord's specific calling is in your life, I do not know. But I do know this. The Lord forgives and He restores. And He does that in order that we might be obedient in our service of Him. As, as one has said, He does not save us so that we can just sit and soak. He saves us so that we can serve. Finally, the last thing I would want for you to recognize this morning is this. If you have been forgiven by Christ, you must seek to bring Him glory by following Him. Jesus told Peter, follow me. And that was a challenge to Peter, to consistent discipleship all the way until his martyrdom came due. Friends, you and I are called to that same steadfast pursuit of the risen Lord to bring glory to God regardless of the cost and regardless of the sacrifice. Those who have been forgiven by Him must seek to bring Him glory and follow Him. The failures of your past do not disqualify you from the hope of a bright future of glorifying God because Christ forgives and He restores and He gives purpose in living. So follow Him. If we were to just turn... Just a couple of pages in our Bibles, we come to the book of Acts. And when we get there, we would find just a few short verses in, a couple chapters in, we would find that a few days after this event took place in John 21, Peter stood before a huge gathering of people in Jerusalem. And before that group on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and unashamedly and with boldness proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and he exhorted that crowd that day to repent and to be saved. And the Bible tells us that the Lord added 3,000 souls to the church that day. Isn't that an amazing turn of events? Isn't that an amazing thing from being out on that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee to a few days later proclaiming Christ and seeing 3,000 come to know the Lord? Here's what you should understand. No matter how far you have fallen, no matter how hard you have failed, no matter how you have allowed sin to affect your life, Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you restoration. He can and will still use you for His glory. And He invites you to fellowship with Him and to follow Him. And that is my prayer this morning, is that that is exactly what you will do. Because brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.